0: Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission. Connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, you're a lively bunch this morning. That's awesome. So glad that you chose to be here this uh, today and to share part of your weekend with us. Uh, today is our last day of our series called god in the shadows and by the way i want to welcome some of our our snowbirds are starting to return so it's nice to have you back as well listen we've been studying the book of esther and and the book of esther is separated from all other books in the bible because it's the only book in the bible that doesn't mention the name of god not even once is god's name not mentioned Uh, Here we have this story of a Jewish orphan girl living in exile who becomes the queen of Persia It's almost like a a Disney princess story except these are real true characters uh, That we are studying. This is not just fiction. This is real life And if you're new here this morning, you may say why would you spend five weeks 10 chapters, 167 verses, studying a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention the name of God. Don't you go to church and read your Bible to learn about God? Well, we've been saying this for the last five weeks. Just because his name is not mentioned in the book does not mean he's not in the book. In fact, his hand can be found on every single page that you read. His thumbprint can be found on every verse in the book uh, of Esther. And though his name is not mentioned in the book... There probably is no other book in all of the Bible where God is more evident working behind the scenes in the book of Esther. This whole journey of faith that we find ourselves is really about trusting God, that God can take all the pieces of our story and everyone else's story and trust that God is able to take all those pieces and properly place each one of them together. I think the book of Esther is a book that we can easily identify with. And I say that because of all the ups and downs in Esther's life, with all the highs and lows of Mordecai, with all the drama that has taken place in the book, the question that is most asked really is, where is God? Like, where is God? I mean, God, didn't you promise that you would never leave us or forsake us? And it seems like you have forsaken us. Didn't you say that you would walk with us when there were times of trouble? And each and every day... If that be true, then why is there so much chaos in my life? Why is it that I can't find God anywhere? Why is it that I feel so alone at times? Why isn't he acting on my behalf? Why isn't he stepping in and taking control of the mess that I find myself in? We ask those questions, and those questions were asked in the book of Esther almost 2,500 years ago. The same questions are being asked. Where are you, God? I mean, I and my people are about ready to be wiped off the earth. Me and, and the Jewish people, like, where are you? I mean, we're getting ready to experience genocide. What are you doing about it, God? That's what's being asked. It's like God has skipped town and, and left them to fight their own battles. But there's never a time that God actually leaves the battlefield and lets you fight on your own. I didn't say there wouldn't be times that you wouldn't feel like God has left you. Out on the battlefield. I didn't say that you wouldn't be times. You didn't sense that maybe God wasn't there. But I'm telling you God never leaves the battlefield. He never, 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 never leaves you on your own at all. He's always working behind the scenes of our life. He just doesn't often work on the main stage under the lights. He's lots of times just working behind this, the backstage. Behind... The curtain. Even though I know most of us like when he does his miraculous uh, things where you and I can stand up and kind of just brag about the things of God. We prefer that when we're facing financial problems that we are the ones who win the mega million lottery, right? That's like, oh, look what God did. We prefer that when we've been diagnosed with stage four cancer that God would just heal us without any uh, treatments at all. We we prefer that when we have a prodigal child that God miraculously turns him around. We like those unexplainable events that only could happen if God stepped in. I know I'm like that cuz I like to flaunt those miraculous events that God does. But you know what God just simply often works in everyday situations, in everyday circumstances, in everyday elements of life. And what we're learning in this book or what we have been trying to learn in this book, that there is always a reason for the season. There's always a purpose in the pain. There's always the design in the disaster. There is always hope in the hurt and there's life after death in Christ. And we're here for such a time as this. And Mordecai reminds Esther, God has not put you in royal position so you can be prominent. He's put you in this position for a purpose that she was the queen of Sheba for such a time as this. And in the story of Esther, of course, we were introduced to the villain of the story. His name is Haman. He's described as an enemy of the Jew. He's the second most powerful man in the uh, Persian Empire. There's no one that has more power or influence in the empire than the king, and he's the king's right-hand man. And Haman is, is offended by a man named Mordecai. Like he's been offended by Mordecai for years now because Mordecai doesn't give him the honor that he feels that he is due. And as I was reading through that again about offense, you know, offense oftentimes will, will lead to bitterness. And then bitterness will lead to resentment. And resentment will lead to retaliation. And retaliation often will lead to anger, and anger will lead to wrath, and wrath will lead to hatred, and then hatred leads to violence, and violence leads to murder, and murder leads to genocide. That's kind of what's taking place here in the life of Haman. Like, it comes to the point that genocide is the only answer uh, for Haman. That's the only solution, and he has this root of bitterness down deep in his life and by the way the same thing can happen to us when we let bitterness get rooted in we will we will um it will cause us to think and act in ways that we never thought we ever would and we sometimes you know just hope for that one day that i can get even retaliation but i want to know that let you know that forgiveness will always cut off the head of bitterness And so Haman um, devises this deceptive and cunning plan to rid all the Jews in the empire. And it seems as though nothing can stop him. Everything is going just according to plan, no matter what. It looks like for sure Haman's plan to kill Mordecai will happen. Haman wakes up in the morning knowing that by noon Mordecai will be hanging on the gallows. That he has built 75 feet high. Showing to the whole city of Susa. There's one man that controls life and death. And his name is Haman. And that's what he was hoping. Would happen. And last week we kind of looked at. A 24 hour period of time. In the Persian Empire. In the life of Queen Esther. And in a 24 hour period period. The queen puts her life on the line. There, there's a dinner invitation. There's a gallows being built. There's a royal parade for a man who is living on death row. And then there's a night of insomnia. In 24 hours of time, people's worlds are turned upside down. And how different one day can make. I think most of us understand how quickly life can change. One minute you've got great health. The next minute you receive a phone call that says, you've got cancer. One minute, you're just going with your spouse to go visit your, your children and your grandchildren. And you're on your way home and you get hit by a drunk driver, and a spouse is gone. One day, you're going to work like you've always gone to work for 40 years, and one day there's a pink slip saying, We don't need your services anymore. How quick life can change. Many of us would remember 9 11. I was living in Halifax at the time. And uh, Halifax was taking all, uh, a lot of diverted flights because airspace had been shut down in, uh, in the United States. And so a lot of planes that were coming from Europe were landing in Halifax. And so the airstrip was just bumper to bumper with planes that were arriving. And uh, what I remember is they, they made an announcement on the radio that they needed buses. I had my bus license, and so I grabbed the church bus and took another pastor, and we headed to the Halifax airport, and we were going to be unloading the planes, and they were only unloading one plane at a time because they they were checking out everyone individually, checking all the luggage. They didn't know there was a terrorist on one of those planes, so one by one. We were there from 3 o'clock in the afternoon to 5 in the morning the next day just unloading the passengers, and I remember so vividly one man got on our bus, he was just weeping. He had just come from Europe. He was on his way back to New York. His son was scheduled to pick him up at the airport that day. And his son worked in the World Trade Centers. And he was just weeping. I was trying to console him. And I can still remember he looked me right in the eyes and he said, what a difference one day can make in a person's life. And how true that is. One day our our whole lives can be totally turned upside down. And we know what it's like to have our lives turned upside down. We know what it's like. Some of you know what it's like maybe to get a knock on the front door to receive some devastating news. We know what it's like to maybe get false accusations or unkind words or misfortune or gossip or slander. And it's usually in those times that we ask the question, where is God? God, where are you? Where were you yesterday? I needed to have you show up, and it seems you've left me high and dry. How can I trust you if you're nowhere to be found? And those are the same questions that were being asked here 2,400 years ago during the time of Esther. And last week, we concluded with this, that even when life seems to be out of control, God is at work. Even when it seems like life is so unpredictable, well, God is at work even when it seems that evil is unstoppable god is at work because god is always work even when we don't recognize him he's always at work behind the scenes of our life for our good for his glory and he's working all things out to the conformity of his will through you um i have a nephew i have one nephew his name is caleb he's 17 years uh, of age and uh, when he comes to visit, or when I go to his house to visit, he always says, hey, we're going to have a game of chess. You and I, Uncle Donald. He loves chess. And I can remember so vividly, he used to be my next-door neighbor for about 11 years, and he was about 12 years old, and he, and he was coming over, and he says, Uncle Donald, he goes like this, you and I, chess, now. And I said, oh, Caleb. <laughs> I said, you know, your Uncle Donald's a pretty good chess player and uh, I'm not too sure you want to play me. No, 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 I, I'm playing you tonight. I said, may I remind you that um, I was the captain of the chess team, you know, in high school. Uh, like I played uh, chess in university. Caleb, you don't want to play me. And for some reason, none of my lies intimidated him at all. <laughs> so we set up the board and I gave him one more chance to renege. He said, Uncle Donald, get ready to be beaten. I gave up my loud, ha, ha, I take your challenge. And we began to move the players on the board. I was the first one to take a pawn. Then I took another player. Then I took another player. And I took another player. And then all of a sudden, the words checkmate were said. But they weren't coming out of my lips. I could hear them in my ear. And I thought, how is this possible? I was actually only two moves away from checkmate. And I thought to myself, how did he do that? And you know what he did? He took his queen, and she was a decoy, and I kept watching the queen. And I didn't realize it, and I fell for it, and I had underestimated what his queen was doing. And the next thing I know, I'm in checkmate. And Haman had underestimated what the queen was doing. He had made some very bold moves, but in the end, it was he that was lost the game. I mean, Haman had just finished building a 75-foot gallows upon which to hang his colleague Mordecai on. His death was intended to be a foreshadow of the fate of every Jew in Persia. He'd already mapped out all the moves so very carefully with precision. He had Mordecai in check, and he now was only hours away of declaring checkmate. But then something unexpected happened. In a series of events, the tables were turned, and Haman hadn't done his homework. He'd been knocking pieces off the board of his opponent's board without noticing the most important piece, the queen. He had failed to keep his eye on the queen. Haman had just discovered in complete shock that the queen was a Jewess. Haman had made plans to destroy and kill and annihilate every Jew in the empire. And to his horror, he found out the queen was one. Hadn't kept his eye on the queen, I bet he began scratching his head, how did, I, how did I miss that one piece of all the plans, of all the details in my plan? How did I miss that one? And of course, we learned last week that the king was absolutely enraged when he found out someone was trying to take the, the, the life of his wife. And then to find out it was his right-hand man, it says he left the room furious, angry, angry. Of course, he comes back in, and then he just finds Haman kind of on top of Esther, begging for her life, and he just gets enraged. And as I read this story, I can't help but realize that God is the ultimate strategist. The game of life belongs to Him. Even when He is silent, He is present. Even when it seems He's been removed. He remains sovereign. Even when it seems that he is running late, his purposes are right on time. God is the master of the game of life. And God has not only created you, but he's created you to be here for this moment. And it just happens to be for such a time as this. And when the tables are suddenly turned, after Esther had risked her life to get the king's attention, Within 24 hours, Haman's plot was uncovered and he was hanging from his own gallows. And it's at this point that most people stop reading the book of Esther. Hey, Ooh. You know, the villains got defeated. Esther now has won. It's over. And in fact, I've had people even say, so what are you preaching on next week, Donald? I go, oh, well, we're, we're, we're still studying Esther. Oh, but it's over. I mean, she won. I go, oh, no, no, no. The story's not over. First of all, there's three more chapters. Secondly, remember there's a law that's been put in place that cannot be changed. And that day is coming. Esther has no time to lay out on her lawn chair and soak in the sun. There's a law that says there is a day coming that they will have to deal with. Haman may be dead, but the, the, the edict of death still remains. What a turn of events. And that was God's hand at work in the glove of history. It might look like a series of coincidence, but it's actually the sovereign providence of God moving the places. And this scene, and these moves are all choreographed by the creator of the universe. But however good the news was, the edicts was still in place, pending the destruction of every Jew in the entire Persian Empire. And so with that, let's pick up our story again. If you take your Bibles or electronic device, whatever you may have, and turn to the book of Esther. And we're going to be looking at chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. And you can follow along as I read. Esther chapter 8. That same day, same day that, more, that Haman was hanging on the gallows, that same day King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And the king took off a signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the royal or the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and she stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if it, he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman the son of the Hamathite. And the Agagite devised and wrote to destroy the king of the Jews and all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. Because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther. And they have hung him on the gallows that he had built. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and seal with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all that Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps and the governors and the nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in script of every province and in the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and their children and to plunder the property of their enemies." The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the province of King Xerxes was the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves against their enemies. The couriers, the riding royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence. Remember, this is all on the same day. (laughs) That morning that Haman was hanging. This is all happening that day. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness amongst the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. Verse 16, it says, there was hope. (laughs) There was light at the end of the tunnels. And with that, let's just pray. Father, we pray now as we look into your word over these next few moments in time. I pray, God, that we will be able to really grasp the providence of God that will really come to grips, that you are ultimately always in control and that you're always working in our life. Sometimes it's behind the scenes, but you're always at work. Lord, I pray that truth would be seared in our hearts and minds this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what we have here is there's this national day of celebration nationwide for the Jewish people. The Persian Pony Express had galloped at full speed, bringing the good news to the Jewish people. Now the clouds, it seems, have been parted for the Jews, even though the massacre was drawing near. Because now the Jews could finally defend themselves, though they were greatly outnumbered. Napoleon once said that God is always on the side of the largest army. (laughs) And if that is true, well, then the Jews are in big trouble because historians tell us there's about 50 million Persians living in the empire. It does not bode well for the Jews in the empire. It seems maybe, though, that Napoleon may be wrong on this occasion. You know, something that really struck me in the very next chapter as you read, if you take time to read that later this week, in verses 10 and verse 15 and verse 16, it talks about the Jews defending themselves, and it says not one of them took any of the property, any of the belongings of those who attacked them. Even though the law says if you kill somebody who's trying to kill you, you can go and take everything that belongs to them. It says the Jews did not take anyone's plunder. It says, though, that they killed 75,000 other enemies and not one Jew died that's God at work even though the Jews could have taken it wouldn't have been considered stealing they didn't take one thing I don't know about you I don't know if you've ever felt ripped off by somebody I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been taken advantage by someone I remember when I was I don't know maybe about 10 years old and I can remember being in the house, and our car had broken down, and my dad had purchased a new motor to put in the car, and it was actually worse than the motor that was in there. And my dad is a pretty even keel guy. Like, you know, if the house burns down, it's like, well, huh, we could spend a night in the hotel tonight. Isn't that good news? Like, he's just so easy going. But that particular day, whew, he felt like he had been taken advantage of. And I just remember as I was listening to him on the other end of the, the telephone, thinking, oh, my goodness, he is going to take legal action against this guy. We all, which he didn't, by the way, but we all like, we all like to retaliate when someone has done us wrong. We like revenge. We like settling the score. And that's what could have happened for the Jews. They could have settled the score. With their enemies. I read this humorous story this week about a guy who was bit by a dog who had rabies He was rushed to the hospital And the tests were done and on both the dog and the man the doctor came into the room to deliver the news He says the dog has rabies and most likely You will develop rabies the man quickly grabbed a a pad and a pen and began to write The doctor thought he was writing out his last will and testament And he told them, you are not going to die. There is a cure. The man responded, I know that. I'm just writing out a list of the people that I want to bite today. (laughs) That's usually how we like to do it. Get even. And that's what the world thinks is actually appropriate. The truth is the longer that we stay in that stage of revenge and retaliate, the harder it is on us. Bitterness and anger will always steal your joy. Even though oftentimes the enemy will whisper in our ear, get even. You've taken it long enough. It's time. Settle the score. I discovered that when we respond differently than what the world expects, people take notice. When you turn the cheek after suffering injustice, People are left asking questions. And in the end, God receives glory and the gospel gains more credibility because it really has changed us. If you take time to, to read the remainder of the story, and there's this national day of celebrating, and it's marked on the calendar to be celebrated every year. It's called the Day of Purim. It talks about in the next couple chapters, this day was set up to always remember that they would never forget that God had delivered them from annihilation. And, this, and, and they were told, tell your children that God delivered us. Tell your grandchildren that God delivered us. Make sure your great-grandchildren know of this day when God delivered his people from the hand of their enemy. And for nearly 2,500 years, it has been celebrated, the day of Purim, the day that the Jewish people were rescued from the hand of their enemy in the book of Esther. Well, near, Over 2,400 years later, there's a 20th century story that resembles the story of Esther. And it was reenacted in the country of Russia. On March 1st, 1953, Just eight years after the Holocaust, where six million Jews had been killed, Joseph Stalin unveiled a proposal to liquidate every Jew in the Soviet Union, about three million. The proposal was due to go into effect on March the 9th. Stalin, a paranoid Jew hater, had liquidated already thousands of Jews during the 1930s, including many of those who were really loyal to him and were trusted comrades from the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, Stalin had exterminated the Jewish Communist Party, that really, that party did more to wipe out Jewish uh, culture than anything else, and, and he executed the heads of that party. And the Jewish Communist Party, by the way, this was their mission. The Jewish, now, Communist Party's mission was the destruction of of traditional jewish life the zionist movement and the hebrew culture these jews actually were the allies to the stalin and yet he was out to destroy them in fact we find out that the very first ambassador that came from israel to the soviet union was named golden Mier. and he was so infuriated by the reception that she received when she came into the country by the jews that he began to move ruthlessly to make sure that each Jew living in Russia would be destroyed. And so he, Jewish poets and writers and artists were all liquidated. Most who were loyal to the Communist Party. And then the world was stunned when the Czechoslovakia uh, Communist Party boss, Solansky, a loyal Stalinist, was charged with treason and hanged like his good friend. But it was the infamous doctor plot that was to mark the climatic movement of Jewish genocide. In 1953, Stalin had suddenly announced that a plot had been discovered that was designed to kill him. It was a devious and a clever one planned by doctors who all happened to be Jewish. And the government-controlled press made sure that was the front page every day on the paper, the plot and the plotters. And Stalin decided that he would hang all the doctors and it would serve as a pretext for the mass rioting that would take place in the Soviet Union. And that for three days of these riots, his plan was to destroy two-thirds of the Jews in Russia, and the last third would be sent to Siberia to a concentration camp where they would eventually die. So on March 1st, 1953, at 12 noon, Stalin called for a meeting of all of his high-ranking Communist Party members into the Kremlin and read to the Soviet leaders his plan to exterminate the Jews. He said, I quote, the murderers in the white jackets, those are the doctors, have admitted their guilt. On the 9th of March, they will be hanged in Red Square before all to see. But not even this punishment will satisfy our people. The masses' anger will not be satisfied. And there will be three days when we will be unable to stop the righteous wrath of the people who will take out their fury. On the Jewish people. Stalin concluded by saying that after three days, the heads of Jewish communities will admit in writing their collective guilt against the Russian people and will plead with the government to save them from total annihilation. And after receiving this request to intervene, the government will not be able to remain aloof. And in order to separate the, the racist uh, Jews from the Russian people, the Jews will be placed on a special train heading far north to the Siberian plains. However, only one-third, this is what he's saying, only one-third of the passengers on that special train will arrive to their destination. The other two will fall to the anger of the masses at every stop along the way. When Stalin finished reading the proposal, the room was dead dead silent they were shocked it says stalin was furious he cursed his cabinet ministers and walked out slamming the door that was march 1st march 2nd the day after outlining the plans and exactly one week before the extermination of three million jews was to take place, Stalin had a stroke and he died on March the 5th. And the beginning of the extermination of the Jews was replaced by Stalin's funeral on March the 9th, which was the Jewish holiday Purim. Purim has been celebrated since 453 B.C. when the Jews We're delivered from the hand of the enemy. And God continues to protect his people. That's a God moment. That's where God is taking all the pieces and precisely putting them together so all things can work out for the conformity of his will. For your good. And for his glory. When I was reading through this story again this week, I was... I was struck by the irreversible edict of death planned by Haman. It's important to note that the Jewish people during Esther's time were not condemned because they had done something wrong. They were Jews. That's it. (laughs) They hadn't done some treacherous, treasonous event. They just simply belonged to the Jewish race. And there was an edict of death. Do you know it's the same for us today. We're under the king's edict of death because we belong to the human race. The murderer and the moral man will experience the same condemnation. The rich and the educated stand under the same reproach as the poor and the illiterate. Serial killers and social workers are both under the irreversible edict of death. You walk through a graveyard and you will see a silent testimony of the impartiality of this irreversible law. According to the law of God, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. For simply belonging to the human race, there's the penalty of death. And I haven't found any evidence that would change that. One out of one people die. And under Haman's law, the Jewish people were not able to defend themselves. As part of the human race, there's nothing that we can do to escape that clause. We are completely defenseless against the justice of a holy God. Nothing you and I can do to avoid death. And Romans six twenty three says for the wages of sin is death but it doesn't end there. That was the first edict. The edict of death but it's the second edict that comes out. But yes true the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That conjunction But is very important in any conversation. I love you, but. I I love dating you, but. You're you're a good employee, but. The word but has the ability to grab our our attention because the word but seems to negate all that was said before. In Romans 6.23, it's the hinge upon which all eternity hangs. For the wages of sin is death, but... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. you got to love that word, but. There is death, but there is life as well. And Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection nullifies the edict of death and enacts the edict of life. And we'll be celebrating in just a couple weeks. None of us can avoid death, but all of us can by faith in Jesus accept the edict of life. And the second edict brings life and hope and peace and purpose. You know, I really believe this to be true. The only place that you can really find peace in this world is in the heart of someone who has been redeemed by Christ and reconciled to God. That's where peace really resides. It's not a a state of never-ending ecstasy, It's not that you have a a thrill every time you climb out of the bed, but it is the knowledge that the wrath of God no longer rests on you. You are no longer helpless and defenseless under this edict of death, but forgiveness under the life, edict of life, you can be saved. I conclude with these two things this morning. In your journey of faith, walk with confidence that even when God cannot be found, even when you're wondering where is God, even when you're tempted to think he's left me to fight on my own, remember he's not gone anywhere. He hasn't left you. He made a promise to his kids. He said, I will never leave you. I will never leave forsake you and he has the power to keep his promises he may be in the shadows but he is always present always present always at work sometimes it just happens to be behind the scenes and sometimes we just don't recognize it we just don't see it but he is always at work working all things out to the conformity of His will for your good and His glory. Second, for all of us, the edict of death has been passed down, but the edict of life is offered to those in Christ Jesus. I know most of you in this room probably have Accept that Christ is your Lord and Savior. But I'm confident to know that in a room this size, there are people that haven't given their life to Jesus. There was never a a moment in your life where you recognized who he was and you invited him in. I'm just suggesting in the quietness of this moment, invite Jesus into your life. Like give God control I mean, after a while, you must grow tiresome of trying to control your life. Give God control. Invite Jesus into your life to forgive you of your sins and to give you a hope and a peace and life and purpose like you've never experienced way. Walk away from the edict of death and walk into the light of the edict of grace and life. Today. Let's pray.